That last phrase, that last passage there, last part of Jesus' opening statement is one that we have a real hard time with as Christians, I believe. One that we struggle to uh, accept and struggle to live and struggle to uh, deal with because nobody likes to be yelled at. Nobody likes to be not liked. Nobody likes to be somebody's enemy just because of what they stand for. Yet that's what Jesus said is going to happen. And we'll see as when we get to that part of this uh, sermon, we'll see that uh, Jesus says that to us a lot as as his followers. He says it to us a lot that the world, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Don't be surprised if the world doesn't embrace you. Don't be surprised if you are on the outside. And don't take steps to try to be on the inside. Because when you go on the, when you try to get on the inside, you compromise your faith, and that's what's going on today. But that's for another uh, sermon altogether. Now, an important point that I think it's important to understand about the Sermon on the Mount is this: it isn't for everybody. Kind of addressed this a little bit last week. Jesus wasn't preaching this to everybody. Sermon on the Mount contains bits and pieces of salvation. It talks about salvation. It talks about a relationship with Jesus Christ. And you can jump off of what he's preaching, some of these points, and get into a message on salvation because he's laying the foundation, the groundwork to get there. The Sermon on the Mount wasn't preached to everybody. The Sermon on the Mount wasn't even preached to that entire crowd, even though there was a large crowd there. If you look at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, it says, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, who came to him? His disciples. So this was a teaching for those who were already following him. Now, others may have been in the crowd. Others may have heard it. But this was a teaching that specifically Matthew says this was to his disciples. This was to the ones who were following him already. So this wasn't necessarily an evangelistic sermon. Jesus, as I said last night, last week, was setting the bar for our faith. This sermon was intended for and given to his disciples, his followers, and that would be us today as well. As we, wherever you are on your walk of faith, wherever you are in your life with Jesus Christ, this sermon is always a good checkup for you. It's always applicable to you. It's always in fashion, if you want to use that phrase, for you. You never outgrow, you never outmature, you never work yourself beyond what is preached in this sermon. This is always, always important for every follower of Christ. Let me say this as well. The Sermon on the Mount wasn't a blueprint for morality. And that's what, when I, when I say people come in and they take away uh, bits and pieces and put that into um, and, and, and use that as a way to live. This wasn't a blueprint on morality, not at all. In fact, what this was, uh, was a dissertation on what it means to be a true follower of Jesus. It defines the character and conduct of a true believer in Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount isn't about morality. It's about the true character and conduct of a true follower of Jesus Christ. Now, why do I say it's not about morality? Because 
you can jump off, just like you can jump off to salvation from the Sermon on the Mount, you can jump off into morality and the morality of, an, of a Christian, of a follower of Christ from the Sermon on the Mount. But this is about your character and your conduct, which is the foundation of your moral ethos, your moral code as a Christian. This is supposed to be the normal life for a Christian. Okay, this is supposed to be normal life. This isn't isn't supposed to be super Christian. This isn't supposed to be evangelist that goes and, and preaches to tens of thousands. This is supposed to be normal Christian life. This is what we're supposed to live like. This is what Christianity is supposed to look like. And listen, I'm not here, I'm, I'm not asking you to be judgmental. I'm not asking you to tear anybody down. And that's not what I'm trying to do with this. But as we go through this, I would ask you to do this. As we go through this series, first of all, examine yourself. Look at your own life and see if what we're talking about here really speaks to who you are representing as a Christian. Are you striving to be this way? Not are you there already? Not are you perfect? Because we're not going to be. The Christian life, the walk with Jesus, is a journey that doesn't end until you get to heaven. My my parents are both 87. Thank you for praying for my mom, by the way. She's doing much better. We didn't think she'd be coming out of the hospital. She's right around the corner in rehab right now. Uh, getting better. So we're very thankful for that. Thanks for praying for my dad. Uh, every day he goes over. It is just, it's, I'll tell you what, my parents at the age of 87, they never cease to teach me lessons about what it means to be a godly married couple. And I continue to learn from my parents. You know why I continue to learn? And I didn't say that just to pump up my parents, but you know why I, I, I say that about my parents? Because at the age of 87, my dad's almost 88, he'll be 88 in April. At the age they are, have been married for 60, 66 years, is it? 66 years, I think it is. They are still growing in their faith. They are still drawing nearer, drawing close to Jesus Christ. They are still finding new ways. My mom said this week, I'll tell her my mom because I think she's watching. She said, well, I guess it's not God's time to take me home. So I better... Uh, I better get better and get back to it. And, you know, I have no doubt that if my mind, I, listen, I have no doubt that if my mom becomes healthy enough, she's going to be back there on a Sunday morning teaching these little rugrats, I mean, these children on Sunday morning, okay? And if my dad ever gets his voice back, I know that he's going to be bugging me to preach on a Sunday and then do a Bible study again. I just know that about my parents. That's what this is about. It's not about ever arriving It's about the journey and growing and what you're supposed to be and how we're supposed to live and how we're supposed to react and respond to life as a Christian. It's something that is supposed to be, it's not something that's supposed to be out of the ordinary. This is the way we're designed to live for Jesus, how we're to be wired and how we're wired to be effective and fruitful. Now, All of the Beatitudes start off with a statement, blessed are. And if you're from the South, it's blessed are, right? We don't go around saying blessed all the time, but when it comes to this, that's how people pronounce it, blessed, but it's blessed are. So all the Beatitudes start with blessed are, and there's eight of them. 
And I think it's easy to misunderstand or not fully understand what Jesus is saying here if you don't fully understand what that word blessed means here, because we throw the word blessed around and use, don't throw it around, but we talk about the word blessed, we talk about blessings, but is that exactly what Jesus is talking about here? Not necessarily. The, the word beatitude is an English word, but it comes from a Latin word, beatus, and it means blessings. But what is that word blessing that Jesus, that is translated blessing here, what does that mean in the Greek? What does that mean in the original language that Jesus was talking about? Because I think we have to define it a little bit further to understand why, he's, why it was translated to the word blessed. The word blessed in the Greek means happy, happier, supremely blessed, well off. It can be said that the blessed individual is wealthy in happiness. That's what Jesus is saying here. Happy is the one. Happy are the ones extremely happy, wealthy in their happiness are the ones who do this. Many times we look at uh, the Beatitudes, especially the one, we're first one we're going to talk about today, the poor in spirit. And we think about those, the, the poor in this land and in the, in the world, and it's all about our, our giving to them and all about our capacity to, uh, to give to others in charity. That's not at all what that's talking about. Jesus is saying the people that live this way, the followers of mine that exhibit these attitudes, these behaviors, these, uh, this way of living are incredibly happy people. They're overflowing and wealthy in happiness because they live a blessed life, a life in the modern terminology. They live a life saturated with God's favor. See, I've worked two songs into my sermon already, right? They are just overflowing and wealthy in the happiness because God is blessing their life. Now, when you think about that, some of that, that first word, blessed or happy, is the polar opposite of what he's saying. Happy or the poor in spirit? Aren't we supposed to be rich in spirit? Rich in spirit, serving the Lord, full of the spirit. Well, Wait a minute, remember, this is foundational. This is the beginning. This is where Jesus said, this is where you need to start. Now, there are eight Beatitudes. And for practical study and application purposes, because the Bible and its principles need to be practical for us if they're of any use in our life whatsoever. Remember, we don't learn... We don't study the Bible just to have head knowledge. You don't study the Bible so you can win Jeopardy. You don't study the Bible so you can win Trivial Pursuit. You study the Bible so that it will be practical and livable in your life. As we read and study and learn the Bible, we're supposed to apply it to ourselves. We're supposed to apply it to the way we live and walk and the way we treat others. So the Word of God is supposed to be exhibited every day in the way we live. And the eight Beatitudes are divided up. You can divide them up into two different groups. There's two different, uh, two definite different applications of groups of four. The first four define a healthy relationship with God. The first four Beatitudes will define a healthy relationship with God. Now, we may look at that and say, geez, just four? 
Well, yeah, I'll tell you what. If you can get these four down in your relationship with God, in your walk with Jesus Christ, you're going to be living a good, you're going to be living a solid Christian testimony. And you're going to be really understanding what it means to be faithful and, and, and serve and be fruitful for Jesus Christ. The first one is happier the poor in spirit. That, ex- that, and we're going to find this out this morning, that helps us to understand that we have a great need. The second one is happier those who mourn. That one, as a kid, that one always made me think, what in the world? Is, why, why should I be happy when I mourn? When I'm mourning, I've lost something or somebody's died. What Jesus is saying is, Happy are those who mourn because they understand their great brokenness. Their great brokenness. I'm broken. We're all broken. Putting on a show that I'm not is false. Jesus says, understanding that you are broken before me, man, that's the beginning of understanding a healthy walk with Jesus. The third one is happy are those who are humble or meek and I always remember when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, they'd all, uh, somebody would always preach on this or teach on this, and they'd say, meek does not mean weak. And it's true, meek doesn't mean weak. What he's saying here is happy are those who are humble. Happy are those who are humble. And what it means, now, gentlemen, don't poke your wife on this one. It says, what he's saying is there's an importance of great submission. When submission is talked about in the church, especially the old school churches, they always talk about the wives submitting to your husband, right? Wow. Whoa. Hey, whoa, whoa. I did not say, I just want to, I just want everybody to know for the record that I did not say amen to that. Okay. I was not the one that amen to that. Somebody else did. I'm not going to, I'm not going to let the, you know, I'm not going to let the cat, but great, great submission, great submission is for each of us to Jesus Christ. Submission to the will of the Father. See, that's a tough point. When you start understanding that being meek doesn't mean, you know, meek will inherit the earth and we're going to be, you know, we're we're going to be kind and gentle. That's not at all what he's talking about. To be meek and humble before God is to understand that in order to be fruitful for Jesus Christ, you need to be humble before him. You need to be submissive to him. Zach and I had a great conversation on Friday night. I came over here and worked a little bit and uh, Zach came in and we, we chatted for quite a while and we're talking about, talk about father, son things and ministry things and life. And, uh, and I said, you know, Zach, uh, sometimes God asks us, sometimes God asks us to do something to just see if we're willing to do it. He doesn't necessarily follow, want us to follow through. And that's not necessarily the calling on our lives. What he wants to do is see that we are submissive and willing to do whatever he asks us to do. I, when I was in college, I switched my major. The third, third time I was in college, I switched my major to uh, cross-cultural studies, which is missions, because I was going to be a missionary. And my first, the first place I was praying about going was to England. And then God shifted it, and we were approached by a couple from the Philippines. I, said, I told you this a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago. Uh, and they asked us to pray about taking over their ministry 
because they were going to be retiring in the Philippines. An amazing ministry with an open invitation to come and teach Bible classes in a 50,000 student public high school in Manila. I prayed about that and prayed and prayed and prayed and, and I had a real peace and I said, God, if this is where you want, if this is what you want, I'm all for it. I'll go for it. Already had churches lined up that were, they, they already said, we'll support you. One, uh, I had two churches uh, wanting to be my sending church. It was awesome. And two weeks later, it all, crushed, it all came collapsing down. And it came down in such a way that I knew that that wasn't God's plan. What God was doing was asking me and checking on me and, and digging into my heart and saying, are you willing to go wherever I want you to go? And then you know what happened? Just a couple days after that, I got a call to come and candidate for this church. And this was the one church I didn't want to come back to. So many times God will, some, sometimes God will ask you to do something just to see if you are submissive enough in your heart and your life to follow through on whatever he asks you to do. He may have a totally different plan, but he wants to make sure that you're submissive to his will. We're not going to get off, although we've already gotten off on it. The fourth one is happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who have a great and passionate desire for truth. Let me tell you, man, that is what is missing in Christianity today. A passionate desire for truth. We have a passionate desire for acceptance. We have a passionate desire for popularity. We have a passionate desire for the world to say, we love you. We love you. We want to be part of you. We have celebrity pastors. We're giving a rock concert. We've got smoke shows and light shows and all this. Come on, be with us. We want you to love us. <laughs> Jesus said, that's not what it's all about when it's following me. That's not what it's about. They will hate you just like they hated me. See, Christian, we've got to understand, New Lifers, we've got to understand that. We are not going to be the popular kids in school. We are going, we are, in fact, there are going to be those who work against us and hate us. In fact, uh, one pastor out in California, they had a, uh, 4,000 churches got together two weeks ago on Sunday, and they preached on biblical morality, and they preached for biblical marriage and things like that. The minute, this is, this is absolute truth, the minute they posted his sermon, John MacArthur's a pastor out in California, the minute they posted his sermon on YouTube, YouTube took it down and called it hate speech. That is, you can look that up, absolutely true. It's not going to be long. Those of you who think that I go in a chair, I can get up in my jammies and my coffee and have my donut and I can watch church online, let me tell you, I don't think it's very long before the day's coming where we're not going to be allowed to do this online unless we compromise our message. I believe that with all my heart. That was in Canada and the United States. Canada is brutal. You want to do, a re you want to do some study on what it's like to try to be a Christian and have a church in Canada? There's a pastor that got jailed for having church services in Canada. Jailed over and over and over again for having churches just recently because he did not bend to the will of not having church during COVID. You're not going to be popular. And if, you're, and if a church is incredibly popular with the in crowd, you have to ask yourself why. Truly. And I'm not being grouchy old pastor. I'm being just honest about it. Then the second group of four defines the first group of four defined a healthy relationship with with God the second group of four beatitudes define a healthy 
relationship with and towards others. Happy are the merciful, those who show great compassion. Man, I can't wait. I, I can tell you, that's one of, the, one of the topics I love to preach about Jesus the most. Because when you see he was Jesus bone tired, dog tired. Remember, Jesus was God and man all together, but he was the power of God confined in a human body. So Jesus experienced hunger. He experienced thirst. In fact, on the cross, when he was dying for our sins, he said, I'm thirsty. Jesus experienced great fatigue at the end of the day. Man, I've had those long days, all week long, long days, work until 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night, all week long. And I'm bone tired. One of those days where my head hits the pillow and I wake up (laughs) because it's morning and I didn't know what happened to the night. You've been there. We've all been there. And Jesus, the Bible says, after a long day of service and ministry. Remember, they walked everywhere. He, didn't, he couldn't text to save his voice. He had to talk with everybody, and he was healing people. And the Bible says, remember the woman uh, that, was, that was healed by touching his garment? Remember, remember what Jesus said? He said, who touched me? Because I felt it go out of me. Physically, humanly speaking, ministry drained Jesus. It drained him physically. It made him physically tired yet. And this always drives me when it's 8.30 at night and they get a phone call and they need to talk right now and I've been up since 6 o'clock working. If Jesus could be moved with compassion and go beyond fatigue and bone tiredness to, to minister and serve others, then who am I to not do that? He is my example. Jesus said, blessed are the merciful because they have great compassion. Number six is blessed are the pure in heart because they have great honesty with God and others. The seventh one is the peacemakers, which is always lay your weapons down. We'll put flowers in our gun barrels and everything will be wonderful. That's not what the peacemakers is all about. Blessed are the peacemakers means there's a great response because these people build bridges and not walls. They build bridges and not walls. Bridges, not bridges to nowhere, bridges to Jesus Christ. And the eighth one is blessed are the persecuted because they have great endurance. They don't quit. So those are the eight we're going to cover. And and as I said, four of them, Uh, talk about our relationship with God and the other four talk about our relationship with others, but we're going to try to do them one at a time, maybe one or two at a time because some of them might blend together. So today we're going to start with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We could say it this way, happy are the poor in spirit. And, And to understand that we need to break that down. Let's do a little word study, shall we? The word poor that is used there means exactly what you think, but can be applied to different areas of our life. It means destitute of wealth. It's a pretty good description of poor. Destitute of wealth. Destitute of position or honor. Not just poor in money, because that's where our minds go all the time as Christians, right? As human beings, our minds always go to money. Those of you with children, it's all about it. It's... Can we afford to do this? Can we afford to do that, right? We, uh, I was just talking with Brian Whitaker uh, before service, and I said, you know, we, we talked about a vacation in the summer, and 
we have four kids now and like they're not four little kids so they can't all sleep in one bed you know the, remember how when you're little kids you could put them sideways on the big bed can't can't do that anymore uh, it's like two maybe three hotel rooms right to to take our family on vacation and it's gonna be yeah so you know what we did we we figured it out that for a certain amount of money that's a that's a decent outlay we can get season passes to Six Flags and get the, the, um, the food thing, right? And they can have lunch and dinner and a snack at Six Flags and they could be out of my proverbial hair all day long, right? And uh, I can take my stuff and I can sit there and work and I can go, Hillis, I can go to the water park and hang out at the water park or whatever because I'm not, Johnny don't do uh, roller coasters anymore because I throw up all over everybody behind me. But for that one price, man, we can go and they can spend the day riding roller coasters, playing in the water, doing all that stuff. And they come home and they're tired, not as tired as they used to be when they were five and six, but they're tired and they can go to bed. So in order for us to have any kind of a, you know, some kind of out of the house vacation, we have to sit down and figure out, can we afford it, right? Because that's where our minds go. It always, when we always talk about poor, and always talk, we always think about poor financially. But Jesus was expanding that and really speaking to being poor in spirit, destitute of position, destitute and empty of honor, lacking in anything. This, this concept that Jesus was giving to us was a person literally realizing that they are poor in everything on their own. Helpless, powerless, literally a great illustration of what he's talking about here is literally being a beggar on the street. A beggar on the street, not just financially, but a beggar on the street spiritually. A beggar on the street inside. A a, a beggar when it comes to uh, a relationship with God. I remember uh, the pastors growing up, my dad used to describe people who uh, went t- telling other people about Jesus Christ, sharing your faith, witnessing, as we used to call it. He'd say it's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread, right? And I'm sure many of you have heard that from a pastor before. So that's what that means. And the word spirit is simply our rational spirit, the power by which the human being thinks, feels, or decides. And another expansion of that is the soul. So poor in spirit, empty and without wealth and without anything inside, on our own, of ourselves. The poor in spirit are those who realize they have a great need for God. As C.S. Lewis described it, uh, we, we all have a God-shaped hole, right? Have a, all have a God-shaped hole in our, in our, in our spirit. Those who are ha- the poor in spirit are happy because they realize, I have a great need for God. Let's, let's be honest. Let's take a little sidetrack here and, and be honest. Every human being is searching for something. They're all looking for something. And they're trying to figure it out and fill it with all kinds of stuff. 
That's why, that's why the fads and the lifestyle uh, changes and all these things pop up. That's why there's so many get-rich-quick schemes. That's why there's so many, uh, so many different ways. Change your, you know, change, your, uh, change your career. Jump on this bandwagon. Do this and that and the other thing. Because people are looking for fulfillment. That's why there's so many different religious sects that come along and they last for seven or eight years and then people move on to the next thing. Because people are looking to fill that emptiness inside They're poor in spirit, but they don't realize it. We're all born poor in spirit. We just have to get to a place in our lives where we realize that's exactly where I am. And the only one that can fill that emptiness is Jesus Christ. And that's the very first thing. And that's exactly why it comes first in this list of Beatitudes. Because before you can ever do anything of value in the kingdom of God, you have got to realize that you are empty of, your, uh, empty of any ability to do it on your own. That all the power in your life to do something for God, to build the kingdom of God, has to come from him through you. Happy are those not only who understand their great need of God, but happy are those who embrace their need of God. Jesus, when Jesus was saying, happy are the poor in spirit, he was saying that the individuals who realize how destitute they are in themselves, how empty and needy they are in their spirit, will ultimately be the happiest in their relationship with God. I believe that understanding this first beatitude, understanding this first statement by Jesus Christ in this very important sermon, is to begin to understand our need of and our need to be reliant on Jesus Christ. Now, I think we should also recognize what being poor in spirit isn't. Because many times we can take this and this is where putting on a show and being, a, being the actor in the church or being act, the actor in the world or where those who don't know Christ take these things on and, and make it, make, try, to, try to clothe themselves in the teachings of Jesus without them really taking them to heart. Poor in spirit is not false humility or self-pity. Poor in spirit is not, you know, that person who has their head down when everybody's applauding and they seem very humble, but they're doing this on the other side. Keep it coming, keep it coming, keep it coming. It's false humility. That's not Christianity. That's, That's not what Jesus is talking about here. That's not being poor in spirit. Having to let everybody know how much you do. I'm so worn out. I'm so tired today because I've just been doing so much for the church. <sighs> I've just worn myself to the bone. I don't have any time for my family. That's first of all, that's the problem, okay? Your family comes first. You gotta spend time with your family. Because if you lose your family, then what's what's there for you? Okay? False humility. That's not what it's about. If you, let me say this, if you lose your family because you've neglected them for the ministry, that's what we're talking about, okay? It doesn't glorify misery or poverty as a sign of spirituality. It doesn't glorify misery or poverty and claim that to be spirituality. Those who say they're taking a vow of poverty so they can serve Jesus Christ better, that's not scriptural. Okay, that's not scriptural. In fact, Jesus says, bring all your tithes and offerings into the storehouse 
so that there'll be meat in my house. And just check it out, man. Just put me to the test and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that you're not going to be able to contain. And that starts the whole giving, living, giving life, giving, living lifestyle. You give to get from God so you can give more to the kingdom. So he'll give more to you so that you can give more to the kingdom. And it's a vicious, it's a beautiful cycle of giving, living with him. God hasn't called, as a Christian, God hasn't called you to be, to live in poverty. In fact, he says, I will meet your needs. If you rely on me and trust in me, I will meet your needs. Doesn't mean you're going to be a millionaire. You might be. You might be the kind of person that God can trust with money. Okay? When I was younger, I'm not, I wasn't that guy, right? I just wasn't that guy. I'd, I'd, uh, I'd love to buy a brand new car so I could pick people up for church in it. See what I mean? See what I mean? That's that, that's that false humility. I want all the blessings so that I can show off for who God, for who I want people to think God says I am. So that's not being poor in spirit. It also doesn't mean that you're falsely mature in your faith. Right? You don't, you, you don't have to have the answer for everything. In fact, you don't have the answer for everything. And uh, I love sitting down with Pastor Zvaldo, and I love sitting down with Pastor Zach and having those conversations. I love sitting down with my father, Pastor Dave. Those are men who have studied and dug in and, and, lear and I learn from them. I, I learn from them because I don't have all the answers. I need to learn more. I need to constantly learn so I can be better at living so that I can be a better husband, so that I can be a better father and in turn being all those things for the kingdom of God, I can then be a better Christian and pastor and leader for my church. See, being poor in spirit isn't being falsely humble about your, uh, your spiritual maturity. There's nothing wrong with saying I need to grow, okay? I've been saying that since eighth grade. I need to grow. I was 5'8 in eighth grade and I'm 5'8 now. You know? As a Christian, there's nothing wrong with saying I need to grow. And being poor in spirit is not attention-seeking. It's not drama-filled. We don't use that idea of being poor in spirit to, to draw attention to ourselves, to create drama in the church and with others. We don't do, that's not what it means to be poor in spirit. To be poor in spirit as a follower of Christ means you understand the great need you have of Jesus Christ in your life for salvation and for daily living. Listen, man, I cannot make a day on my own without him. And if I, if I, happen, to, if, if I happen to get up and my day starts and it's just going 90 to nothing, many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You get, I get halfway through the day and I'm like, you know what? I haven't even prayed yet today. I prayed over my breakfast, but I haven't even taken time to pray. I mean, I'll stop right there. Say, God, I am so sorry for neglecting you and my relationship with you. Please bless my day. Help me to understand uh, what it's about. Before, it doesn't matter how close it is before the boys run out the door to get to the bus. And sometimes it's that close because they have to get a mask every day. We have a, we have a prayer. I say, God bless Gabriel and Michael's day, help them have a great day at school and bring them back home tonight so that we can be a family. I want my boys to know 
that our day should start with a conversation with our Father in heaven. It's not false humility. That's understanding that I have a great need and my boys need to understand they have a great need in their heart and their lives for him. So what is being poor, to, poor in spirit? It's quite literally the recognition that you are eternal. Now listen, don't get offended. Don't get upset. Don't, don't uh, you know, shut off. Don't turn things off and, and go, you know, watch the preparation for uh, the cooking show. It quite literally is the recognition that you are eternally valueless without Jesus. Being poor in spirit is quite literally as a human being saying, I am eternally valueless without Jesus. How do I know that? Because those who die without Jesus Christ as their savior spend eternity in hell. Jesus is the only person that gives me value eternally. And if I try to do it all on my own, the value that I believe I bring to life on my own is nothing, as the Bible says, but filthy rags. It's trash. So without Jesus, I am eternally valueless, and so are you. In fact, in, in the translation of the message, 1 Corinthians 13.3, Zach and I were talking about this Friday night as well. 1 Corinthians 13.3, it's talk, thir chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians is all about love. It's the love chapter. Two weeks away, you know, somebody's going to be sending somebody a Valentine card with a love, uh, a, a verse of love on it, or somebody gets married, and they you know, 1 Corinthians 13. But in 1 Corinthians 13.3, before Paul goes on the whole uh, dissertation about what love is and how love acts, he says this, I am bankrupt without love. I am bankrupt without love. That's the, in, the, in the message translation. I am bankrupt. Man, have you ever thought about yourself that way? Have you ever thought about yourself on your own as a human being without Jesus Christ? Without the love of Christ in my life, without the power of Christ in my life, without his passion, without his desire, without his motivation, without his purpose, I am bankrupt. When you start to get to that place where you understand what it truly means to be poor in spirit, to be empty and void of worth without Jesus, then you begin to understand what it means to live a life that serves him. Because remember, I've said this many times, this life is not about us. This life is about him. He's preparing a life for us for eternity for those who accept him as savior. He says, I go to prepare a place for you in John, in, in John. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I do go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and get you and take you to where I am so that where I am, you can be also. In order for us to be as, as powerful, in order for us to be as, uh, as passionate, as fruitful, as effective in this life, as a follower of Christ, we have to understand that we do not bring value to the table. We get our value from him. Now, let's be honest. That hits us right in the ego, doesn't it? <laughs> that hits us right. What do you mean I am valueless? Listen, I'm not saying you don't have worth. 
I'm not saying you don't have talent and abilities. Because you can live this life completely on your own. You can make a good living. You can buy a nice house. You can raise a nice family. You can have cars. You can go on vacations. You can do everything that a normal human being can do. You have that physical ability. But we're not talking about physical ability here. We're talking about spiritual We're talking about things that matter. We're talking about the reason that Jesus came to this earth, lived for 33 years, ministered for three years, and then died on the cross for. We're talking about our spiritual value to the kingdom of God. Our value to Jesus Christ himself. If you don't accept him as your savior, then the Bible says when you stand before him at the great white throne, your name will not be found in the book of life and you will be cast into hell because you don't have value on your own. Jesus gives you your value. These aren't so cute little sayings anymore, are they? These are are tough truths. These are difficult things to accept. You see what I mean by last week when I said Jesus is setting the bar for living for him? right up front. He's saying, listen, if you're going to do something for me, if you're going to serve me, I have to be your priority. I need to be your number one. Not because I deserve the adulation, not because I want you to praise me for crying out loud. He, he created us. He also created the stars. He also created the angels and the angels constantly praise Jesus. They're constantly, there's there's angels constantly standing before the throne of God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He doesn't need us. He says, if you're not going to praise me, listen, human being, if you don't praise me, I can make these rocks cry out and praise me. That's who I am. I have come to give you value, not to validate myself. Hey, Jesus didn't create you to validate himself. He created you because he loves you and he died on the cross for your sins because he wants to spend eternity with you. He wants to give you value. The poor in spirit have simply come to the understanding that they have nothing of human or spiritual value to offer to God. The power, the abilities, and the gifts come from him. We're looking to expand ministry. We're looking to start new things. We've brought new people on board to do different things in the church. We're getting ready to start a missions team next month and looking for people to jump in because I want collaboration. I want people that have ideas. I want people that have vision. I want people that can think outside the box about how we can reach our community, what we can do to tie them into what Jesus has for them. I want people that are passionate about that. Why? Because people that understand that kind of stuff are people that understand that their abilities and talents and gifts come from God. The Bible tells us that. The gifts you have, they come from God. The ability to sing, to play the guitar, to play the drums, all these things come from God. The gift to to do whatever it is you do in your daily life. Listen, when when I pray on Saturday night, when I have my prayer drive on Saturday night, you know what one of my new prayer requests is to God? God, I I surrender everything to him. That's just part of my prayer. God, I give you all this. And God, I give you my physical condition because it's very difficult for me to stand up here for 45, 55 minutes 
because right now I'm standing on, I really can't feel it. My right leg is numb. <laughs> it's just gone numb because there's nothing there. And I have to be able to deal with that in order to do God's will. I know I can't do it without him. That's not false humility. That's fact. I don't have that ability. And when we understand that everything we can do, everything we have the ability and the, the capacity to do comes from him. Some of you have been given great minds. Some of you have been given the, the ability to organize. You've been given the ability to communicate. You've been the, given the ability to be a relationship builder. Or when you get to these next four, that are relationship with people, you've, become, you, you've been given the ability to have great compassion. My wife is that, is that person. My wife has a huge heart. She has a, a big heart. And she's, she's like, John, can we, can we, because there's, there, there's more kids in our daughter's family that need to get out of that prison that they're in right now. She's like, can we fix up the basement? <laughs> like, no, no, there's, 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 no, we can't. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but that's her heart. And some of you are exact, that exact way. Your heart overflows with compassion and you just need to know how to put, how to plug that in to ministry. And man, once you find that, <laughs> you can't be stopped. And it becomes addictive. Like Paul wrote about the house of Stephanus. He said, look at the house of Stephanus. In the old King James, he says, how they are addicted to the ministry of the saints. You know why? Because Stephanus and his family, they realized that they had nothing without Jesus and that he was their everything. You're my strength when I am weak. You're the treasure that I seek. You're my all in all. When I fall down, you pick me up. When I'm dry, you fill my cup. You are my all in all. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. Those of us who are poor, those, of, those who are poor in spirit towards Jesus understand that he is 